1: Welcome to the Train Happy Podcast with me, Tally Rye. This is the podcast that helps you have a feel-good relationship with fitness, food, and body image. And today I am talking to returning guest, Pixie Turner. Now, you may know Pixie as a nutritionist, but she's also a psychotherapist, and her latest book, Food Therapy, is the topic of today's conversation because it's so interesting that yes we have these complicated relationships with food but have we ever thought about why we have them? Why beyond just diet culture and what the root cause of them are? And Pixie is doing so much work with her clients and within her clinic to really dig into those stories as to why people develop disordered relationships with food, with exercise, with their body and how you know trauma may have impacted that kind of previous life experiences may have impacted that and it's so interesting i think this is a really really important discussion and i have to say um food therapy uh, by pixie tanner should be added to everyone's must read list but before we get into that it is time for this week's train happy trooper of the week this week's train happy moment came in via whatsapp anonymously but this person says hi tally hi team so i'm trying to get back into exercising after a bit of a break due to an ankle injury And last week after work i wanted to go straight to the gym so i went totally unmotivated and tired so after sitting next to my locker in the changing room for about 15 minutes just arguing in my head with myself i just got up packed my bag and got out The lady at the reception looked at me as if I was the laziest person in the gym I just smiled at her got myself a nice croissant at the bakery next door and walked home in the sun now I really love this this is unconditional permission to rest in action and I think you know when you're really in that should mindset I should be exercising I should be doing this I should be back exercising after this injury by now I think that puts so much pressure on making that workout happen and sometimes We're not ready. We're not there. We're not mentally there. And that is okay. All in good time. So I'm really glad you listened to your body. You gave yourself that permission to rest and you enjoyed your walk home. If you have a train happy moment you want to share and you want to be train happy trooper of the week, of course we want to hear from you. We love a text on WhatsApp. We love a voice note too. You can send it to 075-999-27537 75 and if you're international you can add a plus 44 in front of that and if you have a question for myself or for guests then of course we'd love to hear from you okay enough from me here is the brilliant pixie turner i love this conversation and i'm excited for you to hear it too Pixie, welcome back to the Train Happy podcast. This is so, this is very exciting for me to have you on because
0: you've written a new book and I'm quite frankly obsessed with it. Thank you, that is really lovely for you to say.
1: It's really good, it's really good. It's called Food Therapy, which I think is quite indicative of the topic of the book. But, well, my first question really is, why food therapy and why have you ended up Going down that route. Obviously, you had a nutrition background. You've since trained as a psychotherapist. Why
0: the need for food therapy? I think all my clinical experience that I gained over the years, starting working as a nutritionist in particular, I realized that a lot of people's food issues have quite strong psychological roots, often going back into people's childhoods. And I realized I was having the kinds of conversations with clients. That they really needed to be having with a therapist. And I had that moment of, oh shit. If I want to <laughs> do this work and have these conversations, I need to become a therapist. So I did. And as a result, I've integrated these two, these two professions, these two aspects, these two ways of working. And the way I describe it is food therapy because it is at its at the foundation of it is therapeutic. The foundation of it is. You know, being a therapist, being being a good listener, the empathy, the unconditional positive regard, the, the being honest with clients, all of that is really the foundation to help people explore their own relationship with food. But of course, there occasionally comes in that nutritional aspect, but it is more of a sprinkling now. But food therapy feels like a good encapsulating of the two that kind of just meshes the two together. Because there's not that many people in the u k who have both qualifications and who do integrate this work, and I feel it is a it is one of the big reasons why people seek me out in particular, which is quite lovely, actually
1: it is i i have I was saying before this, I have sent people your way because I think you're right. I think so much. And kind of what the book poses at the beginning or what you pose at the beginning is this idea that so many people are coming to you because it's the food. It's, if I just can sort the food stuff out, then life is good. And you know, similarly, people come to me saying, if I can just sort out my relationship with exercise, then life is great. From my own kind of personal experience and professional experience, I know that my relationship with food was so to do with the loss of my dad and so linked with so many things to do with that, you know, reading your book really validated that for me. I was like, yes, this is, this was my experience. Like I completely get it. And I feel fortunate to come out the other side of that. But so many people are coming to you with these, this idea that it's food, it's the food. And I think, interestingly enough, I'd be interested to hear your take on how we talk about the people online, the kind of other, I don't want to diss other nutrition professionals because there's certainly a need for them. But the way that I think A lot of media talks about, it's just the food. If you can just sort your food out, especially within the context of dieting, if you can
0: just do that, life is great. And yet we know that that's really the tip of the iceberg. Absolutely, it's the complete tip of the iceberg. I think we have this idea that food is the problem, the problem that needs to be solved. And the way that I approach it is, no, food is your solution to the problem. Food is your way of coping. Food is your way of solving something that's going on. Food is your way of managing something. It is the solution to a problem. So if we can figure out what is the problem you're trying to solve, that's when we can actually really start to do really fantastic work that goes beyond just eat some more vegetables. Um, and you know, all this stuff, you know, listening to your body is is fundamentally important work, I think. But it's also at the same time, sometimes I found it's just not enough when you take. A glance in the direction of all the psychological underpinnings and you start to go, ooh, there's a lot here to work with. And you know, in your, your example of yourself is perfect in that it's. I imagine it's then by talking about your father that you've been able to progress in your relationship with food in a way that you perhaps didn't before, because that gives you such great insight that if you can connect those dots, it gives you so many more avenues for conversations, for tools, for skills, for conversations, for ways in which you can improve your life. And I think that is so valuable and I don't want people to miss out on those kinds of conversations. If you were to ask me, I don't know, six, seven years ago when I was much more
1: in the thick of it I would never have linked my relationship with food with unprocessed grief I would never have linked that because they felt quite distant in years you know it was probably like four five years after my dad died until I actually really exhibited symptoms of a really disordered relationship with food and I remember talking to my therapist about this and going like so you think they're linked then she's like yeah
0: But I still Mm. couldn't
1: draw the dots because it didn't feel like a direct link. I didn't go, oh, my dad died. And now I'm doing, you know, I'm behaving this way around food. I didn't, that didn't happen. It was a very slow, gradual process of me. And I love, I love that you spoke about grief in this book, um, of me slowly going like, oh, so I didn't know how to cope with that. So I never faced it. And I just kind of carried on with life like nothing happened. Um, and as you know, and as so much of this book kind of discusses, we can suppress and ignore and try and run away from whatever happened to us in life, but it's going to find us at some point and it's interesting how food can play a big role in how we cope with that.
0: Oh yeah, whatever you suppress, whatever you avoid, it's gonna catch up with you at some point. Uh, You can run and run and run for as much as you like, but at some point you have to pause and catch your breath and that's when it's all gonna rush and catch up with you. And the longer you run, the harder it's gonna hurt when you stop and take a break.
1: And we can say that for exercise as well because very literally and figuratively you can run and run and run and you're gonna have to stop at some point. And so I think in the same way people use food to
0: cope, they use exercise. Exactly, No, especially because of all these diet culture narratives that say you can control your body with food and exercise. And because food and exercise... Food more so, but definitely both have these very strong ties to morality, to your body. And therefore, because your body is the stage on which you perform this morality, this sense of worth, this sense of status and all of the, and power and all of these other factors. So therefore, if you change or try to change or control your body, you are creating a new narrative by which others perceive you. And that feels like some sense of control, even though all you've done is eat a vegetable.
1: Yes, yes. I always describe my previous like relationship with food was very much like the world was very uncontrollable. There were few things in my life I could control. So I looked to control them. I thought my body was one of them. I thought what I ate was one of them. And I thought how I moved was one of them. Um, and actually understanding that I, you know, understanding how, there are so many factors that go into our oh weight and health, and that there's so many external things and that I can't control has actually been extremely freeing for me personally to go like, oh, so I was, I was told I could control all of this. And when you actually like sit back and go, actually, this I can control like maybe 10, 20, not even 20% at best about what's going on with my body and me and my health, like. I found that very liberating. I, I, rather than panicking and going like, "Oh crap," <laughs> I was like, "Do you know what?
0: What will be will be to a degree." No, I love that that was freeing for you because I think it can so easily go two ways, mm. right? It could be incredibly liberating, and it can also be absolutely terrifying. Because if you let go of that, what do you replace it with? And people feel like sometimes that if they let that go, they have they have nothing, and they just there's just an absence of control, and that feels absolutely terrifying. I think people have this idea often that it will, yes, it sounds liberating, it sounds wonderful. And I think for some people it genuinely is. But I also think it's very normal to have a sense of terror Mm -hmm. around that because you're losing something that has given you something really important that has felt really valuable, that has felt like it's helped you in a huge way. Letting go of something like that, really scary for people.
1: When people come to you and they're saying, like, I want to work on my relationship with food. Do you think there's a part of a conversation where you have to go like, okay, how how you've related to food up until this point, whether that might be binging, as an example, you know, that's got you to a point, but it's also led you here. And we know that this doesn't serve you long-term and that we're going to have to, you know, make sure you have coping skills in place to kind of navigate this transition away from binging, because that's clearly what you want
0: and what is best for your long-term health and well-being. Um, How does that conversation go? Interestingly, people who come my way usually have that understanding of, I'm doing this and I don't want to anymore because I don't like either, I don't like the effects it has. A lot of people start the conversation with, I don't like the binging because it leads to weight gain and I don't wanna have to deal with weight gain, for example, because of the way that people perceive me as a result, it makes it harder to go about the world, all of that. But sometimes it's also, I'm doing this thing and I just don't want to be doing this anymore. It's not making me happy. So then what can I do instead? But then conversation is also, I'm trying to not do this, but I just can't stop for some reason. Why can't I just not do the thing because mm-hmm. I know it's not good for me? And so we often start from a place of there's this thing, I don't want to do it. I want to change it, but I don't know how, because when I try, it doesn't work because what they're doing is just taking something away with nothing to replace it. So we often naturally start at that point, but then we usually start by adding things before taking something away and we go way back into people's childhoods. I, The first session I have with someone, we always, always talk about their childhood because there are clues there. There are very clear clues. And I keep it very open, very vague, because whatever someone decides to share with me is usually what is important because they, they kind of know people have a kind of an innate kind of understanding that there's probably something important here to share and then based on what comes up about someone's childhood that also then or just you know early life even teenage years early adulthood as well depending on how long they've lived already that gives us clues as to what conversations we need to have and what perhaps maybe the skills they need moving forward
1: is that a shock to people are they like oh you want to know about my childhood? I thought we were going to talk
0: about food. A, a couple of years ago, uh, that was definitely what people were People were like, why are you asking me about my childhood? But now people know enough of my work. And um, because I have this extra training as well, because I'm now a therapist and I make that very obvious, people, I think, know now that I'm going to ask them about their childhood. So it's not so much of a surprise anymore, but uh, definitely, definitely, you know, two, three years ago, people were like, what, why, we're talking about my mother? This is a a nutrition session, what's going on?
1: (laughs) We're talking about my mum and not how many Oreos I ate, like what? (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's like, why haven't you asked me
0: for a food diary? Because I don't want to and I don't care. Clearly there's time and place for nutrition um,
1: counselling and input and all of that stuff. But you're right, I feel like you're really getting to the heart of the issue. And what was really interesting in your, book is kind of talking about those different elements and like how they play a role in our relationship with food. Obviously, you mentioned how
0: our relationship with our parents play that role. I mean, shall we start there? We can start there. It's uh, sometimes a bit of a controversial conversation uh, because people sometimes interpret these kinds of conversations as we're here to blame your parents for everything that's wrong with you. And I'm I'm so not here for that. Uh, there are occasional situations, for example, where clients have parents who have been genuinely abusive. I mean, like hardcore abusive. And in that sense, I think it's probably okay to blame the parents. I think it's quite okay to place some blame squarely on their shoulders. But these those are exceptional situations. For, for the most part, for most people, Playing the blame game is not particularly helpful. So I want to make that very clear. I'm not here to go around pointing the finger at specific people. It's not about that. It's about understanding how you got here. Because in the end, someone's intentions are not super relevant. It's about the effects it's had on you as a person. That's what matters. That's what I'm interested in. That's what's most helpful in terms of the conversations I have with people. Mm. So having said all that, our parents (laughs) generally do fuck us up quite a bit, uh, even with the best intentions. It can be as simple as the way that we are taught about emotions, for example, because food is such a common way to either avoid, suppress, or cope with emotions. Therefore, if you weren't really taught how to cope with emotions or you were taught that certain emotions shouldn't be felt, for example, shouldn't be expressed, your classic is the boys don't cry or the, you know, uh, like, don't get angry or, or don't cry well, I'll give you something to cry about, like these kinds of uh, narratives or kids not being allowed to be angry and anger being punished, for example. Those are very common. Only adults are allowed to be angry, not kids. That's often a message that's passed along. Not with that wording, but it's very heavily implied. Or for example, if you have a parent who's em- who doesn't show emotion, it doesn't really teach you how to express emotion because you've got no role model there. Equally, if you have a parent who is... Extremely emotionally uncontained, very volatile, uh prone to bursts of rage, for example, or just, you know, explodes like a volcano out of nowhere, or you know, goes into very quickly from zero to a hundred, from being fine into hysterical sobs. That also can be quite scary for children because it's sh- it shows and it teaches them that emotions are big and scary and terrifying, and they are they have a devastating effect on the people around you. And of course, we were, all, we were all slightly scared of turning into our parents. And so we then, through even just seeing those experiences, especially if we see them on a regular basis, it teaches us these quite harmful messages about emotions. And then of course, you've got the food stuff as well. Something as seemingly harmless and well-intentioned as you must finish everything on your plate.
1: That was my house. I think that's most people's houses. Mm. I I've really,
0: I've, it's very rare to find someone who didn't get that message as a child. I think new generate like uh, lower generations, so millennials and who are becoming parents are perhaps not doing that so much. But yeah, I will ooh. not be doing
1: that. It's like one of my key mm. things. I'm like,
0: nope, you can you can leave your food. Yeah, because it's it seems so so harmless, but what it the message that it teaches is. Your body cannot be trusted. Mm-hmm. I know your body better than you do. Mm-hmm. And that is, when
1: you put and it like that- I don't that, trust your body. I don't trust the signals it gives you because you, couldn't, you don't know when you're full and you don't, you don't know that. And I think that seems, like you say, it seems fairly innocuous, but actually it's, it's one of the,
0: the beginnings of a slow erosion of trust with your body. Because when you put it like that, that you're teaching your child not to trust their own body- Ooh, now it feels like it's on a whole other level but that is essentially what the implication is especially if that message and others like it are repeated over and over and over again
1: mm. and you'll teach and, and i think within that context as well you're not only teaching to not trust your body but you're teaching this level of um external obedience and and pleasing and you know i've been in situations where you know people in My family have kind of said to other children, you know, no, you have to finish that. You kind of have to finish that. And it's really hard to see. I I find, because like you say, I think there's a generation and there's certainly my parents' generation where like that was so normal and expected. And, you know, I didn't grow up having, we didn't have a lot. So there's a level of scarcity there of kind of this is what there is. So you've got to finish that um and you can't throw away food like you just can't do that because this is you know um we're really fortunate to have this and uh, you know there's starving children in Africa we know that Mm -hmm. whole sentence I mean I feel like we're a whole generation that grew up with that sentence in the household (laughs) um and so you know we it it is it starts really young but i think people are there with the best intentions and like you say when you don't want to blame parents you know that they were doing the best they could i like to think the best they could with probably rubbish information um and you know the better informed you become the better you want to become and the better you want to start changing those things and it's those little kind of tweaks that really can change the narrative of you know i hope one day my child's relationship with food
0: yeah, and they, it all adds up, absolutely. And as you said, most parents are doing the best they can with the tools they have available. But what is not helpful is when you come across new information is to get defensive about the way you are doing things. And that's what I really encourage, especially if, you know, if any parents are, you know, reading what I have to say on social media or reading the book, for example, or even just listening to this. Getting defensive is not going to help you or your child's relationship with food. It's about recognizing, You did the best you could with the information you had, but when new information comes along, you adapt and you go with it because that's the best thing for you and for your child. Mm, But yeah, that feels sometimes easier said than done, doesn't it? Oh my (laughs) God. Humans love getting defensive. We have real issues with getting defensive. It's really interesting, especially once you start to notice all these things and if you're the kind of person who then points out to somebody, hey, have you thought about what this actually is, this message you're passing on to your child? defensive
1: oh yeah defensiveness is my default so I, I i know that well
0: i think it's most people's defensive okay yeah. that's good that's good it's, to know. i think uh, what i've really noticed is that human beings are really really defensive
1: mm. across so what the I board i found really interesting and i suppose in we think of childhood as well and we think of like say up until like young adult age of And you can experience trauma throughout your whole life. I mean, you don't have to be in that age range, but we think those are real, really formative years that really do mold us and childhood trauma in particular can really just lay the foundations of a really difficult path ahead. Um, And I found it, yeah, really interesting how you were talking about the different trauma responses. So let's start with the trauma responses for people who don't know what they are.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So the four I outline in the book are your fight, flight, freeze, and fawn. Most of us are familiar with fight and flight, but then freeze is a third option that usually becomes an option only when you can't or you feel you can't fight or flight. And fawn is your, your people-pleasing, where you're trying to placate the abuser, trying to you know flatter them in order to make sure that they don't hurt you. And we see that with people who are very, very strong people pleasers, um, for example, or people, you know, if something's wrong, they will just try and make make everyone happy, make sure everything's okay. That's more of a, a fawn type response. So yeah, those four. It's always very interesting, I think, for everyone to think about where is your natural tendency? Mm. Where do you naturally go to?
1: Mm. I definitely can have fawn tendencies, I think for sure, but I also think I freeze as well. But what I found interesting was that you had kind of observed that people who are naturally the flight response find that they have particularly rely on their relationship with food to kind of cope with things. And uh, yeah, I just wanted to hear more thoughts about that.
0: Yeah, so this is, I I couldn't find any, uh, I couldn't find really much research in this area. So this is very much based on my clinical experience, but there's been a very clear pattern I've noticed in that when people have a tendency towards flight in particular, so running away, it shows, it suggests that there's a tendency towards avoidance. And when there's a tendency towards avoidance, then food can really easily come in as a distraction or a way to avoid feelings in particular because a lot of our emotions live in our core so somewhere between our throat uh, maybe our chest where you know where our heart is or where our lungs are anxiety is often there as well but then also a lot of people i speak to say that their sadness lives in their stomach mm. and then you've also have things like anxiety and shame can also live in the gut so all of these are connected to our digestive system in some way in the same kind of areas. So it really is not that surprising when you think about it, that if someone feels sadness in their stomach, for example, that then if they eat food to take that place, it it enables them to avoid or to suppress that sadness because now you've got a physical fullness in place of where the sadness used to be. And it's almost like it pushes it down and takes its place, which is always an enlightening conversation to have with people. I love that moment where they go, oh my god, it makes sense. It's wonderful. But it does kind of make sense that if they live in the same area, one can be a temporary solution to the other. Mums the Word is a brand new parenting podcast hosted by me, Ashley James. Pregnancy, piles and all the other problems that come with parenting, I'm not going to sugarcoat anything. Join me each week on my journey through motherhood as we celebrate the amazing highs as well as the lows. As it's my first time, we'll have celebrities, experts and hopefully you guys too who will help me figure out what the hell I'm supposed to be doing. Find us wherever you got this podcast. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: But no one wants to feel uncomfortable in their body. No one wants to feel the discomfort. And so we try so many things to do it. And, you know, other people they do drugs, they um, compulsively they use alcohol, <laughs> they compulsively clean, they compulsively exercise, they do all sorts of things just to avoid feeling the feelings. You know, I say this speaking from my own experience, really, like, I can, um, in theory, know that I need to feel my feelings. But there's one thing knowing it intellectually, and there's another thing actually doing it. And I think we do not have that education currently growing up like you say we don't necessarily have it role modeled by our parents if you're used to people not really expressing emotion in front of you or kind of pushing it down or telling you off for being upset or whatever it is like you don't know how to do it and you don't know how, you don't know you, that you can feel it in a safe way that is the question you know like how do we feel these feelings and how does feeling these feelings then impact our relationship with food
0: mm. so if you can stay with discomfort in whatever form it is, particularly emotional discomfort, if you can spend time with that without doing anything with it, that's real power because now you can choose what you do with that. You're not reacting to it. So the way I usually start people off with feeling their feelings is to help them. I start by giving them a tool to manage when things feel overwhelming, when emotions feel overwhelming. So that they're not just going out, you know, sitting quietly with their feelings. It all is overwhelming and they're like, fuck, this is, I hate awful. this. <laughs> right. Cause it's, it's too much. Um, mm. you know, and you just don't know what's going to come up. It's, you can sometimes have a little bit of an, a sense, an idea, but truly you don't know what's going to come up. Sometimes I've sent people off to feel their feelings. They've come back with stories where I've gone, where the fuck did that come from? Absolutely no idea. So I start by giving some, giving people a tool to manage the overwhelm because overwhelm in itself implies that the emotion is bigger than us. It's big, it's crushing us, it's weighing down, especially when you feel very intense emotion, it feels like it's crushing you. And yet your emotion lives in your body. Therefore, it can never be bigger than you because it lives in a very specific part of your body. We use sadness in your stomach as an example. Your stomach is just one organ. It's just one part of your body. The rest of your body is around that. The rest of the world is around your body. That emotion, that sadness can never be bigger than you. And if you have the tool to be able to place that emotion in context, not get rid of it, place it in context, now you have a tool to be able to manage if it feels like there's too much because it can't be too much if it's smaller than you. Mm. So I usually start people off with that kind of practice, which we do in session as a kind of a guided practice, a guided anchoring, I call it, because that really helps them to feel like, okay, if everything feels overwhelming, I can do this. Even, you know, do it five times over if needed. And then I send people off to sit with their feelings just for a couple of minutes. They decide how long they want to start with based on their own anxieties, their own experience, their own concerns about what might come up. Some people start with five minutes. Some people start with just sitting there for 15 minutes And that's it. And when the time is up, you're done. You push it all down, you push it away. You usually at that point have a little bit of a dance party because when you have a dance and a boogie, you really just get to shake, literally shake it off. It Mm -hmm. genuinely actually works. It's good for your vagus nerve and all of that beautiful stuff. And then you get on with your day and then you forget about it. You don't really think about it. You bring it to the session, we talk about it, and then you go off again and do some more until you are able to spend longer and longer time with your emotions without doing anything with them. And only when you're done spending time with them, do you go, okay, now what do I want to do with this? What do I want to do with this? Not what is my urge, my desperate need to do with this? What do I actually want? And then that's the time you're actually legit in control.
1: Mm. That feels like um,
0: becoming like some Jedi master. Like if I'm honest, the way you it, like, <laughs> These aren't the emotions you're looking for. So if you can learn to sit with that emotion and manage it and just exist with it, you can pause and go, okay, do I actually want to go to the cupboard? Because if I do, that's fine. By all means, go to the cupboard, get some food. Totally legit way to go about things if that's what you want and you're making a choice. But then if you're like, actually, no, I'm kind of full and I don't think that would be helpful right now. Then you have the capacity now to think of something else you can do if you even need something else to do
1: and i think this kind of leads nicely onto the idea you know of emotional eating Mm -hmm. and so much of it has such a bad rep and such a you know it seems when i was like looking at your book online if you look at suggested similar titles um it's like You know, cure your emotional eating, and you know I can stop you binging, and da 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 da. Um, and you know, I didn't have much hope looking at those titles because I kind of felt like I knew what their supposed solution would be. So, talk to us about emotional eating. It's
0: not a black and white situation, is it? No, emotional eating is very complex, and it is both a wonderful thing that can be healing and beautiful and just the most gorgeous thing in the world for people and it can also be a very risky harmful destructive kind of behavior the way i see it is that emotional eating is trying to solve an emotional problem with either physical fullness or with an avoidance of eating and when you put it like that, well, then the food is the solution and the emotion is the problem. So we work with the problem of the emotion, and uh, that usually tends to have some kind of impact. But yeah, it is—it is very broad because on the one hand, you know, I mentioned that emotional eating can be a really wonderful thing, and I think I give an example of uh, someone once told me that when she feels lonely, uh, when she misses her grandma, she eats canned potatoes because they remind her of her grandma. Now that is comfort eating. That is emotional eating. There is no way, there is no way anyone can sit and tell me that that is a bad thing. Nobody in the world could convince me that that is a bad thing. That is a beautiful, precious thing. And the idea of taking that away from someone, it makes me sad.
1: Because mm. that is such a
0: beautiful thing. That is wonderful. that is gorgeous. Food can connect people, you know, across continents. It can connect people who are so far away. It's, you know there's a there's a, a kind of cultural connection you can have with food that is beautifully comforting, that is arguably emotional eating. But it's beautiful. It's glorious. it's wonderful. and it's it's precious, and no one no one should ever have that taken away from them. And then, of course, you've got, you know, your other types of emotional eating, which might be too to comfort, which Fine, not necessarily a problem. To perhaps provide a distraction, only a problem if you, if you say it's a problem, if it, then it is, if not, then not. And then you get um, avoidance, which and numbing, which is then when it starts to get de- more of the harmful direction because numbing is a bit more intense. And then uh, at the other end, you get em- emotional eating as punishment. And mm. that genuinely is harmful, that is destructive because. The fact that you feel the need to punish yourself for something, for feeling something or for something that's going on in that way is, that's, that's heartbreaking. That is something that we need to work with. That is something that I think someone really needs to work to change because that's, that's a really sad way to go about life. That's, that's heartbreaking. And
1: that feeds back into what we were saying about how did our parents like treat our emotions, right?
0: Mm, you know it's yeah and also how how did our parents emotionally eat for example Mm. Uh, really really interesting sometimes uh i've seen that parents engage their children in their emotional eating as a way to create a connection of of love and comfort with their children that's very interesting as well there's also you know if, if a parent is always on a diet then you might also go on a diet to feel an emotional connection to your parent it's all very complex stuff it's all very interesting
1: Yes, it is interesting because when I speak to a lot of people, there's a common theme of like, and yeah, my mum was a chronic dieter and, you know, I kind of came along for the ride, not necessarily wanting to really, but kind of, it was like our bonding, you know, Weight Watchers was how we bonded. The way I perceive diet culture to be, especially when it comes to dieting as a coping mechanism, I would say it's it's taught us a coping mechanism of dieting specifically and it's taught us that and it's all we know so often you know I often say to people okay so get curious like when you are feeling the urge to diet when you are feeling like it's the weight loss that would cure this go like okay interestingly that is a red flag what is it pointing to where is it taking me because this is my taught coping skill. And we haven't been given much, we haven't really been given many other coping mechanisms kind of growing up. And, you know, I hope now another generation will because there are more conversations like this happening. But interestingly enough, like that's that's interesting. I'm always like, hmm, so that's a sign. What's going on there? And you know, Not only is, yeah, our relationship with food fraught in that sense, maybe it's like a a binging or a disordered way, but dieting as well plays such a role in that coping in in a way that we have been taught to cope. And yeah,
0: how do we we start with that? Where do we go with that? Mm. No, I think you make such a good point. And I think you have to start by being curious about what is it that triggers the desire to diet? Mm and what are you actually trying what are you actually trying to do because often people engage or start the process of engaging with restriction because they feel like they're too much because they've been taught they're too much too sensitive their bodies their body is unruly their body is too big their body is inappropriate uh them as a person they're too much their emotions are too much all of these things and restricting and making yourself smaller can be can seem like a way of coping with that, a very, very socially acceptable way of coping with things. And socially encouraged way. So encouraged. If you tell someone you're going on a diet, I mean, they're like, great. I mean, even like the whole concept of a revenge body, like I'm feeling Mm. sad about my breakup, so therefore I'm going to diet. And people are like, you go, girl, that's amazing. It's like, no, that's kind of messed up. When you actually think about it, you're suppressing all of your emotions, all your sadness around this, and you're channeling that into the gym. That's not, that's not good that's not also you're feeding into a very interesting concepts of desirability mm. which then pull the number of uh, there's a lot of people who have a lot of very interesting uh issues with this whole idea of desirability which is a whole other conversation but all of this stuff all feeds into a, everything feeds into each other right
1: that yes and i just want to touch on that for a sec like the desirability is that thinness is equals attractiveness equals i'm, lovable, I'm worthy. I love that you got into relationships in here as well. Like you kind of touched on everything. I love it. <laughs> but because you're right, like I've, you know, that is part of the whole diet culture narrative and especially the fear of weight gain, the fear of being existing in a big bigger body that diet culture perpetuates and that kind of anti-fatness constantly perpetuates is this idea that we won't be worthy or deserving of romantic love. And I think that's kind of a big underpinning fear for so many people and it's all
0: linked it's all linked (laughs) it's all connected yeah no absolutely this whole idea of desirability and often this underlying belief of i am unlovable Mm. or i am only lovable if my body is smaller which sometimes even can actually come from parents uh placing a conditional love upon their children that you know, I love you more when your body is smaller. I love you less when your body is bigger. They don't say that, but sometimes that is the implication. But then also that can be through through our relationships. And sometimes, interestingly, actually, again, it goes in several directions because on the one hand, there's this, I must not gain weight so that I remain desirable or that I, so that I, I must lose weight so that I, so that I achieve desirability. But then there's also so in some cases, what I have seen and what also um, Roxanne Gay, for example, writes about in her fantastic book, Hunger, is this sense of, well, if I build my body into a fortress, then I become undesirable and that protects me from predators, that protects me from danger, that protects me from, from well, men, let's be honest. And that in itself can also be not necessarily on a conscious level, a coping mechanism, but on an unconscious level because because our society associates thinness with desirability, that also becomes a way of coping with people, for a way of coping for people. But yeah, it's all connected and diet culture really is at the core, is the essence of so much of what goes on. Because all of this Every this entire conversation we've just had about desirability wouldn't even none of that would even exist if it weren't for diet culture, not really if it weren't for, you know, systemic fat phobia, diet culture, and all of these concepts that humans have created, all of that would just be irrelevant. Mm. And they wouldn't be coping mechanisms because there wouldn't be an association between a body size and desirability,
1: yes, I often read, a poem by um, Nina Manolson, who's a Canadian kind of body image counselor, and she wrote this poem just on Instagram. It's called "I Feel Fat," and she and the essence is like when I sit in my therapist chair and I say "I feel fat," and she says, "Okay, but if you weren't feeling fat, what would you be feeling?" It's really good. I'll send oh, it to you. That's so um, good. It, I read it. I read it to so many of my clients, and they're like, "Oh, yeah." Um, And it always comes up because you're right, that I feel fat, and she says, is a placeholder. It's a placeholder for something I don't know how to express. And actually what it stands for is I'm unworthy, I'm unlovable, I'm not good enough, I'm all of these things. And that's what's really at the core of all of this. And what we as society see above the iceberg is the strained relationship with food, the strained relationship with exercise, the strained relationship with our body. And yet there's so much more there. There's so much more there. And I think what I particularly love about this book and everyone listening, this is required reading now. We're gonna do like a book club on this episode um, on this <laughs> of this, because you're, you're piecing that together for people in a way that I don't think has really been pieced together before, at least not that I'm aware of in such clear ways. And especially for those who've never done any sort of, of therapy before. I think this is really a kind of, Beginner's guide to self-awareness.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh I love that. Beginner's guide to self-awareness. Absolutely because you know not everyone can afford therapy, not no. everyone wants therapy. I'm not suggesting that this is a replacement for therapy.
1: No, I think it's I think it's the catalyst for therapy. That's what I hope it is for that's people.
0: Exactly my hope as well is that for those who are who are willing, who are also able to afford therapy, for example, or have access to it, this can perhaps provide Um, a a gateway. I've even, I've had people message me and say that they have read chapters of the book and then really discovered something about themselves or connected some dots and then taken it to the next therapy session. I'm like, this is exactly what I wanted. It's wonderful. I I think there's so many
1: parts of it that you're joining together. And you know, like when I'm working with people, I'm very specifically looking at movement and exercise and how people feel about that and why they feel the way they do about that but I know I know that that's just a little part that's just a piece of the overall puzzle and there's so many pieces of the puzzle and I think this helps start to understand what those pieces might be for people um which is really cool and really exciting um I really wanted to, as, as well to talk about the shame piece of that puzzle shame is not a positive tool for social change but it's also not a positive tool for internal change and I think diet culture the fitness industry dieting in general shames bodies it shames the way you have the way you do relate to food it shames you for not doing enough for not being controlled enough for not having enough discipline enough willpower and you know isn't it like the definition of madness is doing the same thing a million times and expecting a different result so you'd think that the the diet culture is a sort of industry and would have cottoned on to the fact that shame doesn't work it is not a lasting tool for change and yet people really believe it is and you know when I lay out to people in the context of exercise and I'm like Of course you don't wanna, of course you don't wanna work out when you are told that it has to be punishing and painful and that you have to restrict food in order for this to be effective. Why would you want to put yourself through this? It makes absolute logical sense that you avoid doing this. I completely get it. Why is shame so unhelpful and how is it one of those, like how is it one of those big pieces of the puzzle? I know these are big questions so, Take take the time you need. <laughs> shame is
0: particularly unhelpful because unlike guilt, which is about a behavior, shame is about who you are as a person. Mm. And shame very quickly turns an I did into an I am. And I ams are much more fundamental. So you go from, I made a mistake into I am a terrible person, I am an idiot. I am a failure, for example and that's not really helpful because one action generally for the most part doesn't define you unless you murder someone for example then mm. then it probably does define you for the rest of your life but for the for the most part one thing we do does not define us but shame has this this social element uh, whereby we are we feel like we are judged by our peers by the people around us and that carries with it huge pressures and stigma to the extent that we can shame ourselves or people can shame us without even being there, without even being present for something, but simply because we are aware of how somebody would react to something we've done, for example. So it doesn't even need to be that someone's there. So for example, you could could take your driving test and not tell anybody and then fail and feel a deep shame because you know, or you, ha- or you feel that you know that people in your life would react with disappointment, for example. And then you feel ashamed for the disappointment that hasn't even come your way yet because you are predicting how people in your life would react, for example.
1: And you tell yourself, I should pass my driving test.
0: I should. Apparently, most people don't pass on their first time, for example. took me
1: three times. Oh,
0: see? There you go. Exactly. But yeah, shame is very powerful. And also because shame is an emotion that we don't really talk about, it is, I would probably go so far as to say that that shame is, for most people, the most powerful emotion because it's also the one that people have the most difficult time even voicing Mm. because even saying i feel shame or i am ashamed is in itself shameful so it is so layered and so difficult and shame tells you that you can't tell people something because they will judge you that they will judge you usually the way that you are judging yourself and it usually leads to a very intense type of avoidance or a very intense type of distress And a lot of self blaming, usually as well. And that's the work that is really difficult to undo in someone. Whether it's that they feel shame because their body is not the way it's supposed to be and people have judged and been mean to them in life, like genuinely cruel to them in life because of it. And either, you know, through looks, through comments, through treatment, all of these things. It can be, you know, I feel shame because this thing happened to me in childhood that logically I know is not my fault, but. Because the idea that I was not in control of that is so utterly devastating to comprehend and too difficult. The idea that I was completely helpless, I therefore have the shame and blame myself because then then I have this, this illusion of control that I could have done something differently when actually you were a child. There is no way that you had responsibility, control, power, anything in that situation. That's what I like to, that's why I really try and drill into people. But again, we logically know that if, for example, we were abused as a child or we were sexually assaulted in our teenage years, for example, that's not your fault. But people often carry this very intense shame about it because they want to believe that they could have done something differently. And the other big area where I often see shame come up is in particular around things like internalized homophobia. So I work with a lot of wonderful gay clients, a lot, a lot of clients across the LGBTQ um, spectrum. And internalized homophobia is something that comes up a lot because there's this sense of shame, which then becomes a shame about the body because the body is the thing that is reacting and loving and caring about something that should not be desired, that is not okay. Therefore the body becomes the vehicle and the stage upon which to enact that that shame and that suppression. And so people often end up either well using food as some way of coping to mold their body or to control their body because the body is loving someone that the body is not supposed to love. And there becomes a deep shame about that that then really drives that further. Shame is really pesky, really, really nasty, very rarely a helpful situation in in someone's life. I think the example I give, the only real example I can think of where a little bit of shame is a bit useful is if you're the kind of arsehole who takes their their shoes and socks off on a plane, then you deserve a little (laughs) bit of shame because you need to behave (laughs) appropriately. Yes, but it's, it's a little bit of shame, a tiny, tiny bit of shame because you have genuinely been a bit of a dickhead But anything more than that, shame is really unhelpful, really harmful, and often incredibly long-lasting, really like this toxic fermentation in the body that becomes this awful mix of very difficult to navigate emotions.
1: And before we go, I have to ask you, Pixie, what has been your most recent train happy moment?
0: So I have an unusual hobby. I do archery twice a week um, and I'm a member of a club and I do competitions now as well for that. So I would say that my most recent train happy moment was last week, just a couple of days ago, I went to a club shoot and I spent two hours shooting my bow and arrow into a target. And it's very meditative, it's hard work, and it's wonderful. I absolutely love it. I'm living my Legolas dreams. I love this because we're all
1: about all movement counts. There are so many ways to move your body. You can do so many different things. And archery is a new one. We haven't had someone talk about archery before, and I love that. How did
0: you find a club? Uh, There's a couple in London. There's not very many, but there happened to be one that is in Southwest London, which is where I live, not too far which was very, very welcoming. Uh, my first class I went to a year ago, and it was terrifying. I was really nervous about doing something new on my own, mm. and especially the idea of being really bad at something new on my own in front of other people. But I went to the class and very quickly saw that other people were there on their own for their first class as well. And within five minutes, everything was totally fine. And I have gone back Pretty much twice a week ever since I have I own my own bow now, I own a recurve bow, an Olympic recurve bow. it is beautiful. it is legally considered a weapon. I'm not allowed to take it on public transport unless it's disassembled. I was about to say, do you like take it on the tube? Yeah, I take it on the train. yeah, wow, um, but it's disassembled, so therefore it's legal. Uh, but it is legally considered a weapon. It's powerful. I could probably kill someone, but I won't because I'm a good person.
1: Wow. This is all very fascinating, but I'm really happy for you. And I I love that you found something that you enjoy. And I think, you know, that's what it's all about at the end of the day.
0: Exactly, and my shoulders are so much stronger.
1: I bet, I bet. Well, maybe we'll see you at the Olympics. That's the goal. So for people listening to this conversation um, and going like, oh my goodness, wow. There's a whole other dimension to this that i would never considered. Where do they go from this conversation? I recommend reading Food Therapy by Pixie Turner. I do too.
0: What a coincidence.
1: (laughs) But where do they go? And like, what do they do with all this information now?
0: If you have access to either through location, financially, um, anything like that, if you have access to therapy, take the shit to therapy. It is uh, the best place in my opinion. If you have a good therapist, who's genuinely good, qualified, It has enough experience who you connect with because finding a good therapist is like dating. You've got to just connect um, on a fundamental level with someone. Taking your what you learn about yourself to therapy is going to be the best way forward. And you don't have to go private for that. The NHS is wonderful, has long waiting lists, unfortunately. There are also local charities and local services that do provide free and low cost services to all kinds of, of people in all kinds of different areas you just have to find what's local to you and what's catered to you a lot of it's online now as well a lot of it's virtual mm-hmm. thanks to covid so that is that is actually quite good and and a lot of these services specialize in particular areas and there's also local um like in individual london boroughs for example there's uh, general counseling as well that is available for for people so find what is around you, find Find a way if you are able to, if you can. Like I said, a lot of free and low cost options are available. I do offer a lot of journal prompts in the book, which can also be a good starting point. But therapy is going to be the best thing. Is there a way to find like a certain,
1: because there's so many like forms of therapy. Is there like, is there a particular type of therapy that you think is most helpful to kind of explore?
0: this work with. For food issues, I, so this is just my opinion, my professional opinion, not CBT. CBT is great for some things, but in terms of delving into your relationship with food, for example, and delving into emotional aspects, you'll notice that CBT is lacking in the E, the emotional part of things a little bit. CBT is wonderful. Please don't come at me for not uh, favoring CBT, but, in my experience, in my opinion, it's just not the best one for food related issues. You'll either want likely either a psychodynamic or a person-centered therapist. You want something that is more counseling psychotherapy that is not CBT because it's less structured. It gives you more opportunity to bring things in a way that the in the way that they come up for you. and uh, it's you're in charge, not the therapist. and that's the way I think it should be.
1: That's really really helpful to know. Um, oh, Pixie, this has been a joy. We could we could do several more hours of this, really 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 could personally. Um, but like I said, where can people find you? Where can people find food therapy?
0: So the book "Food Therapy" you can find uh, in all the usual places where books exist, including um, the big bad Bezos website. And also, um, I encourage people to go to the, the their local book sh- bookstore or Hive is great for um, connecting to your local bookstore as well. I can be found uh, across social media at Pixie Nutrition. Uh, My website is pixieternernutrition.com. I do have a wait list at the moment for clients in terms of one-on-one services, but my wonderful colleague Hebe, who works for me, who is a wonderful human being, does have some space and she is just as wonderful as me, in my opinion. And I think I'm pretty great. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, yes, people like, let's let send loads of people your way because like I said, not many people are doing this work and it's so necessary and needed and important and I'm a big fan. So um, yeah, thank you so much for coming in today and thank you so much for giving us some time to talk about this.
0: Thank you so much for having me here. It's been great fun
1: but that is it for this week's episode of the train happy podcast thank you so much for listening I hope you took something away from this episode and if you did please do let us know on social media you can find us on instagram at train happy podcast and we do want to hear from you we want your questions we want to hear your train happy moments and we'd love to feature you as train happy trooper of the week so remember you can get in touch with us via our whatsapp it is 07599 Nine nine two seven five three seven, and whatever podcast platform you're choosing to listen to us on please rate and review it really helps the show and it really helps spread the train a happy message and that is it for this week I'll be back with a brand new episode for you next Monday see you then